We'll be on page 1037 again. Uh, if you have one of the Bibles from the welcome table, we're going to finish up this chapter. Look at verse 14 through 21 today. We covered the first half last week. We're going to read this prayer uh, that Paul started back in verse 1, and then, then he paused it in the middle, right in, in the middle of his sentence. He paused it uh, and, and, uh, and began to, to share about his imprisonment on behalf of the Gentile believers. He began to share about uh, uh, how God gave him the ministry of the gospel to make the mystery of the gospel known to them and how that made him willing to suffer for their sake. So this is, this is the second prayer that Paul prays in the first half of his letter, divided into six chapters for us. Um, this is the second prayer in the first three chapters. The first prayer was at the end of chapter one after he listed all these spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing that we've been given in uh, the heavens in Christ. And both of these prayers focus on Paul's desire for the Ephesian believers to receive wisdom and strength from the Holy Spirit so that they grow ever more confident in who God is and what they have become together in Christ. And so the prayer that we're going to read today not only concludes this, the, the chapter, chapter 3, but it also serves as a transition point in the letter, concluding the, the doctrinal focus of the gospel in the first three chapters and setting Paul's readers up for the applicational focus of the gospel in the final three chapters. And I I know there's some in here, and, and maybe you're like, okay, finally, we get to, we get to see how this actually uh, fleshes out in our lives, starting in, in chapter 4. Well, we need to remember that what we believe is how we behave, right? And so before we can ever say, how does this apply to me, we have to say, what is this? And so Paul never gives application in any of his, uh, of his New Testament writings without rooting those applications in the reality and in the doctrine of the gospel of Christ. And so we can never separate. We can't say this is something we just got to kind of trudge through and, and, and then actually get to the, you know, where the rubber meets the road sort of thing. This informs this. Our belief informs our behavior. They're not separate. They're just different. Sort of. Okay. So this is a prayer for the church to know the riches of God's glory in Christ so deeply that it displays that glory to the world. It's a prayer not just for the Ephesian church, it's, it's, a, it's a prayer for the universal church, which means it's a prayer for every gospel-centered local body of Christ in every generation, in every location from the first century until Christ returns. That means that it's a prayer for us, too. And my prayer for us this morning as we work our way through this passage is that we'll, we'll double down on our conviction and our commitment to grow together as a family in the power and love of God. We don't just come to church. We are the church. And the church is the display of God's glory. And as a church, we display God's glory. We, we'll get into that. So I want to read this, this passage. I want to pray for God's help. And then we'll get going. Ephesians three fourteen through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would answer Paul's prayer here this morning as we uh, soak in this passage, as we hear from the word of the Lord and as your spirit works it deep into our hearts. Lord, would you give us through this passage the strength that we need to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm concerned about what lies ahead for the American church. The growing hostility across the the political landscape of our country over the past few months, and especially over this past week, it's it's troubling to me. I don't know if it's troubling to you. I I believe it's moving in a direction that's not going to bode well for us as a church unless we do something about it. But my concern is not about the hostility that the church may face from the outside. My concern is about the growing hostility that the church is facing from within due to an unhealthy focus on what's happening in the political realm. Now, I want to be clear. As an American citizen, I believe that we ought to participate in the democratic process in a peaceful way in order to promote the good of our country and liberty and justice for all. But as a pastor... I'm concerned that the American church has begun to associate its identity too much with American and not enough with church. And as your pastor, I want to help us guard against that because the mission of the church is rooted in the identity of the church. And if we get our identity wrong, we're going to get our mission wrong. Now, I hope that this morning is more informative and instructive than it is corrective But the word of God is useful for both, and so we'll let the word of God speak to us. If we get our identity wrong as a church, we'll be in danger of spending all our time and energy, all our resources, attempting to preserve the church rather than promote the gospel. But God doesn't need our help preserving the church. He's done just fine for the past 2,000 years. And he'll keep doing it. He'll continue to do it long after our generation is gone. We've got to remember that he's sovereignly and lovingly working his plan that he purposed in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul has told us this already in Ephesians. And so we don't need to fear what may be in store for us as a church in a culture that seems to be growing in hostility toward us, nor do we need to fight to restore what we once had. And we need to understand this, that hostility toward those with whom we differ is never an option for God's church. Because our very identity is built on reconciliation and peace in Christ. And we've been given the ministry of gospel reconciliation, not of governmental restoration. I want to say this gently, but I want to say this directly. Our role as a church in America is neither to keep America great nor is it to battle for the soul of the nation. 
Our role as a church is to display to our neighbors and to the nations the greatness of our God who saves souls by his grace. I think it's beneficial for us to recognize God's providential timing in bringing us to this passage after the events that unfolded earlier this week. It's helpful for us to remember that Paul went from being a Jewish nationalist to being a Christian who was zealous about making the mystery of the gospel known to non-Jewish nations. He was put in jail by his own countrymen because he was more concerned with promoting the work of God in the church than he was about preserving his rights as a Jew. And rather than provoking his readers to anger over his plight, Paul prays for them to grow in their comprehension of God's love for them in Christ. Our role as a church is to be a display of God's glory because we are a display of God's glory. Our mission comes from our identity. We do what we are, and that means that we need to be convinced about what we are. And we won't be convinced about what we are unless we're convinced about who God is and what he's done for us. This is why Paul has spent the first half of his letter reminding the Ephesian church of this. Of all of these things. And as Paul gets ready to spend the rest of his letter helping the church understand how to live in light of the gospel, he prays that they would be able to comprehend the light of the gospel that lives in them. That they would see the riches of God's glory in them so that they, so that God might display his glory through them. And so we must pray for God to show us his glory in his church so that we will display his glory as his church. Let's read. Verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul says, for this reason, right? We've heard this phrase before. He started verse 1 that way, which is where he was going to start this prayer. And then he, and then he paused to, to go into that little tangent. The reason that he's referring to here is everything that he's proclaimed already in the first three chapters. More specifically, at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, especially verse 6 of chapter 3. The Gentile believers, he says, are no longer foreigners or or strangers, but they're fellow citizens with the saints, united together in the gospel with Jewish believers as one new man in Christ through the gospel and being built together as a new living temple and partners in the promise in Christ as equal members of the family of God. Paul says, this is the reason. All of that that I just told you, that's why I'm going to pray this prayer. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, Jews normally prayed standing up. Kneeling is an expression of humility and urgency. Paul's response to the, to the wisdom and the beauty of God's redemptive plan that he's just unfolded for these people is, is, uh, uh, causes him to bow in humble worship to the God he's just revealed. And to ask the Father to make the realities of that plan sink deeper into the hearts of his Ephesian brothers and sisters. He's petitioning the Father because the Father is the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. 
In the ancient Near East, naming something was equating it to creating it, to giving it identity, to ruling over it. No one and nothing exists apart from God. He's the sovereign creator of all things. He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name because of his great power and strength. Not one of them is missing. He created the heavenly host of archangels and cherubim and seraphim and and so on. And he gave each one of them, uh, the groups, different responsibilities of service to him. He created mankind in his image, male and female. He created them. From one man, he's made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. This is all straight out of God's word. And through his son, whom he raised from the dead and seated at his right hand in the heavens, far above every name that is named, God gave those who receive him, who believe in his name, the right to be called children of God. This is the father that Paul is praying to. And what does Paul ask for? That the father would strengthen his children by his spirit so that they would experience more deeply the indwelling presence of his son. Paul's asking that the triune God continue his sanctifying work in the hearts of his newly formed people. Now, he's not asking uh, Christ to come and dwell in their hearts as, uh, uh, of his readers. He, he, Christ has already done that at the moment of their conversion through his spirit. Paul's asking that the Holy Spirit who now dwells in them would strengthen them with God's power so that they continually experience the union they now have with Christ. That word dwell is this idea of taking up residence. Christ Christ has come and he's remaining. He's living with us. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what Paul wants his Ephesian brothers and sisters to know more deeply. He wants them to see the staying power of God's glorious riches in Christ. So what does it mean then for us to be strengthened with power in our inner beings? It means that the Holy Spirit who dwells in us directs the thoughts of our minds and the affections of our hearts toward Christ who is always with us. In short, the Spirit reminds us that Jesus is here. Our minds are prone to wander and our hearts are prone to be impassioned by lesser things, aren't they? Any news headline from this past week will reveal that truth pretty quickly. But how many headlines have you consumed this past week? And what's that done to your heart? Maybe the national news hasn't distracted you, but what about the personal headlines that play through your mind? What struggles and trials are you facing that tend to draw the thoughts of your mind and the affections of your heart away from Christ and onto something temporary? Remember, the Bible doesn't ever require us to deny the reality of what's going on, but it never lets us overestimate those things. When we suffer, we need to be strengthened. When we're tempted, we need to be strengthened. When we sin, we need to be strengthened. When we grieve, when we're depressed, when we despair, when we fear, when we doubt, when we worry, when we, when we 
we need to be strengthened. When we strive for obedience, we need to be strengthened. When we want to share the gospel with someone, we need to be strengthened. When we attempt to serve one another, we need to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit direct our thoughts and affections toward Christ? By guiding us, leading us, directing us, taking us along to the truth of God's word and helping us see its ongoing transformational effect not only in our lives but also in the lives of our brothers and sisters in whom the Holy Spirit also dwells. We're strengthened with power in our inner being when we see that Christ is not only present with individual believers but he's also present with his church as a whole and he's growing us together as, his, as one body in love. This is why we're commanded to weep with those who weep to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because we get to see the work of Christ in individuals and ultimately then in the body. Look at the second half of verse 17. This is part two of his prayer. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul gives both an agricultural and an architectural picture here as he prays for his readers to be able to comprehend the love of God. His prayers for them to grow in their understanding of the love in which they've already been rooted and are firmly established in. As the roots of our faith are saturated in the love of the triune God for us, we mature and we, we grow together in Him. As the foundation of our relationship with the Father is firmly established in the residing, the remaining love of Christ, the abiding love of Christ, and strengthened in us by the Holy Spirit, we build on that foundation with the love for one another so that together we may be able to expand our comprehension of the love that we've been given. Notice what Paul says in verse 18. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. This is not an individualistic endeavor. It can't be just you, God, and your Bible. The love of God stands far above our individual capacity to understand it because the nature of God's love is one that binds individuals together as one in Christ into a whole. To comprehend this love is an endeavor meant for the church as a whole because we'll only be able to grasp the magnitude of God's love for us as we experience the reality of it in our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we had our first child, I remember thinking, how could I ever love another child as deeply as I love this one? And then we had our second, and then we had our third, and then we had our fourth. And with the addition of each child, my love didn't diminish for any single one of them. It only expanded for all of them. Listen, this doesn't even compare to the love that the Father has for all of his many children. And think about the multitudes that he continues to welcome into the family as he adopts them through his son. 
Paul sits in a Roman prison in chains because of the gospel. His prayer is that the Jewish and Gentile brothers and sisters in the Lord would be able to look at one another and grasp the magnitude of God's love, the Father's love for them as united children together in Christ. God's love for Gentile believers is not less than his love for Jewish believers. That's one thing Paul wanted them to know. It's something we need to understand. But we need to understand as, as Gentiles who come from different backgrounds and, and life experiences that God's love for every believer is not just the same. It's the same as his love for his only son. Jesus himself prayed that he, we would know this truth. In John 17, verse 20 through 26, Jesus says, I pray not only for these, referring to his 12 disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. If you're a follower of Christ in here. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory You've given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, Christ in us, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one. Picking up on the theme here, that the world may know that you have sent me, and here it is, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory which you've given me because you loved me before the foundation, but before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known. Here it is again. So that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. The love that the Father had for the Son before the world's foundation is the same love that the Father had for us. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. The love that God had for us in Christ before the foundation of the world has now been expressed to us through Christ, even as Christ himself loved us and gave himself up for us. It's a love that, according to Paul here, surpasses knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean that Christ's love is unknowable. It means that Christ's love is so great that it can never be fully known. We'll never be able to exhaust our knowledge of Christ's love because we'll forever continue to grow in our experience of it. Christ's love surpasses knowledge in the same way that the greatness of God's power is immeasurable according to Ephesians 1.19. In the same way that the riches of his grace are immeasurable according to Ephesians 2.17. In the same way that the riches of Christ are incalculable according to Ephesians 3.8. We can experience all of those things. They're realities in our lives because we're united to Christ. But our knowledge of these things will only ever continue to increase without end because Christ is the infinite God. 
Why does Paul want his readers to know experientially what is beyond their ability to know intellectually? So that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. The church is the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way, according to Ephesians 1.23. It's also growing as the holy temple in the Lord, being put together for God's dwelling in the spirit, according to Ephesians 2.21 and 22. Those, those words, length and height and width and depth, this is language reminiscent of the temple measurements. Back in 1 Kings chapter 6, 2 and 3, it says, The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. The portico in front of the temple sanctuary was 30 feet long, extending across the temple's width and 15 feet deep in front of the temple. You know what happened after Solomon finished building the temple and they dedicated it to the Lord? 1 Kings chapter 8. The glory of the Lord filled the temple as a cloud so much that the priests inside it were unable to continue ministering because of it. But we need to understand this. Now, God's glory doesn't exist in a physical temple as a cloud of smoke. It exists in us, his spiritual temple as the church through the presence of Christ in us. Now, as the Apostle Peter puts it, we as living stones are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the more living stones God joins together from every tribe and tongue and nation, the more the length, the width, the height, and the depth of God's love to us in Christ will be known. And the more we know of the love of Christ, the fuller we become in Christ. The more we comprehend the magnitude of his love, the more the glory of the Lord fills his church. This is why we must pray for God to strengthen us with power in our inner being through the Spirit so that we are ever growing in our ability to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. And so that we magnify that love through our love for one another in the church to the praise of God's glorious grace. The Gospel Transformation Study Bible puts it this way. We will not be fully mature until this love is planted in our hearts. We will not live as God's holy ones until we know that we are first of all his beloved ones. We will not treat our neighbors with mercy until we apprehend Christ's mercy toward us. We do not know anything about Christianity until we know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So let's try this morning for a moment to apprehend this love and mercy that God has given to us. Ephesians 2, 2 says that we once lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We'll get there in a, in a few weeks, but in Ephesians 4, 23 and 24, it instructs us to take off our former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and impurity of the truth. How are we able to do that? By God's mercy and his love. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ and saved us by his grace. Jesus came and he lived the righteous life that we should have lived, and then he willingly bore God's wrath against our sin and he died on the cross in our place. 
And then he rose from the grave so that we could be declared righteous with him and live forever in his presence. God adopted us as his own children through his son. And then he filled us with his spirit as a down payment for the inheritance that he reserved for us in his eternal kingdom. And then he appointed the risen and exalted Christ as head over everything for the church, seated us with him in the heavens. He reconciled us to himself and to one another by making peace through his son. He made us co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus together through the gospel. Why? Why would God do any of this for us, let alone all of it? This is why. Because he shows his love and mercy according to the good pleasure of his will, Ephesians 1.5. According to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.7. According to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ, Ephesians 1.9. According to his plan in which he works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1.11. According to the mighty working of his strength, Ephesians 1.19. According to his eternal purpose, accomplished, accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, Ephesians 3.11. According to the riches of his glory, Ephesians 3.16, and according to the power that works in us, Ephesians 3.20. In short, God does all these things so that he can display his glory to us, and then he can display his glory through us. This is why Paul ends his prayer the way he does. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named is clearly able to do above and beyond all that we can ask or think. What human mind could concoct a plan of redemption so wise, so elaborate, so wonderful as that which God has revealed to us in Christ? What could we request from him that stretches farther than the bounds of God's love for us in Christ? If you need more convincing of that, go read Romans 8. That's the whole point. The church is the display of God's glory because the church is the product of God's redemptive plan of love. It shows the power of God to transform lives. He has a measurable power toward us who believe. And that power works in us through his spirit to strengthen us and keep us growing in our comprehension of Christ's nearness and love as we experience it in his church. This is not an individual thing. This is a community experiencing God's nearness, his power, and his love together. God is glorified in the church as it displays his power and love. But the church can't display his power and love unless the church can comprehend his power and love. And for that, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus, whose death and resurrection brought the church into existence according to the riches of God's glory. God is glorified in the church when the glorified Christ is the head of it. And because Christ is the head of the universal church, God will be glorified in the church and in Christ throughout every generation forever and ever, no matter what kingdoms come and go.
This is why we don't need to focus on preserving the church. God will do it. Instead, we need to focus on promoting the gospel because that is how people are added to the church. The church grows as people hear the gospel and believe it. And as they experience the riches of God's glory through salvation, they become a display of that glory as they're joined together with believers from all over the world and across all of history. And as a local body of Christ, we are a visible representation of the invisible church. We bring God glory in this church when people see the quality of our life together as a unified body of Christ and they credit the gospel for what they see. That's why we have to continue to help each other connect the realities of the gospel to the realities of our lives so that we grow together in our comprehension of the riches of God's power and love and be conformed together into the image of Christ by his glory and for his glory. I want more of that. I hope you do too because we need each other in order to comprehend this all the more. Is there a better display of God's glory to a divided America than his reconciled church? The riches of God's glory are not displayed by waving a Christian flag and storming the nation's capital. His glory does not, is not displayed by controlling the Senate or installing our preferred president. His glory is displayed when he installs his spirit in us. And his spirit controls our hearts. His glory is displayed when his people love each other despite their differences because they share Christ. We won't display his glory as a church unless we see his glory in his church. So we must pray that the spirit would strengthen our inner being and make us able to comprehend together, together, the boundless love of Christ that fills us with all the fullness of God. We're going to close our time together by taking communion this morning and then singing. Communion is a display of God's glory as the church partakes in the bread and the cup together. This is why we, we, we do it together and not individually. United under Christ, we proclaim his death on the cross that reconciled us to God and to one another. And we look forward to the glory that is yet to be revealed when he returns. And so as we take communion together this morning, may we be strengthened by the spirit in our inner being to comprehend Christ's all-surpassing love for us according to the riches of God's glory. First Corinthians eleven, twenty three through twenty six, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But remember, he's coming. Amen? Let's drink the cup. Will you pray with me? Father, we bow our knees before you in worship. We thank you for the amazing love that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for pouring out your spirit into us to seal us for the day of redemption, to lead us into all truth, to unite us together as a body with one another and with Christ as our head. We thank you for the glorious riches that we have in Jesus. We thank you for the every spiritual blessing that we've been given in Christ in the heavens. And as we grow together here as a local body of Christ, we pray that we do so in such a way that we continue to grow more and more, able to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Jesus that it would stir us to love each other more deeply, to serve one another in love and humility, that it would cause us to go out into our neighborhoods, to our families, to our workplaces, to our schools, share the gospel of peace peacefully, plead with others to be reconciled to you. May we see in our lifetime here together more children of God join the family. And may you display your glory both to us and through us for as long as we are here together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.